Good morning, church. The reading of the scriptures today is Romans chapter 9, verse 25 to 29. And the Lord is honored when we stand as we read the scriptures. As indeed he said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And I say a Christ child concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us an offspring, we will have been like Sodom, Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You may sit down. I'd like to take a moment to thank Ryan and Danielle and the family for uh, being with us during this uh, time. They're not able to gather with their own congregation over in Jersey, and so they've been traveling over here to uh, be with us. So let's thank them for uh, being with us. Appreciate you guys. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different denominations in the uh, Christian church? You know, I mean, we've got all kinds of things. We have the uh, Adventists and we have Anglicans. We have Baptists and Brethren, Christadelphians and Congregationalists, Methodists and Moravians, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, Reformed and Roman Catholic, and the list goes on and on. There are dozens of reasons why we have those denominations, but we can boil them down to a few major concepts. The first one is doctrine. What do you believe? How people think that the Scripture teaches, what the Scripture teaches about God, about our relationship with God, and those kinds of things. For instance, what we call liberal churches, they're like the Sadducees of the New Testament. The Sadducees of the New Testament did not believe in uh, anything supernatural. They they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And and there are many churches today that have that same view. They don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. But we do. Then there's the Roman Catholics. They don't believe in justification by faith alone. They do believe that the Pope is uh, the representative of God who can speak inerrantly, just like the scriptures, and we don't hold to that. And then there are the Presbyterians who believe in baptizing infants, but we don't believe that the scripture teaches that. Um, There are Some churches that hold to Reformed theology, otherwise known as TULIP, we are Reformed in our theology, but there are others, as we've learned in our devotions, that hold to what's called an Arminian theology. Um, The acronym for that is DAISY, 
And then there's some that are Pelagian. Ever hear that term? Uh, that means that they believe that everybody's born good. And uh, universalists are some of those groups. You know, the universalist believes everybody's going to heaven. So you have doctrine. There's all kinds of different doctrinal issues that, uh, that separate churches one from another. A second area of division has to do with how the church is structured. For instance, you have the Anglicans, Methodists, and Episcopalians who believe that the bishop has the right to appoint uh, who's going to pastor your church and the leaders in your church. Um, the Baptists and Congregationalists, like us, we believe that the local church chooses its own pastor. And then you have the, the Brethren and the Quakers who don't necessarily believe even in having a pastor. Those are church structures and how the church is structured. A third area of disagreement is ethnicity. We have uh, a lot of black denominations today because in the white churches in the past, the African Americans were considered second-class Christians. And so they went off and formed their own denominations. We also have, in terms of denominations, we have other ethnic groups, immigrants that come into a country and they go to the people of their own country and they form denominations based upon that. And then there's always worship style. Worship style separates a lot of things. There are a variety of different ways in which that happens. For instance, Seventh-day Adventists believe in worshiping on Saturday, where the rest of uh, the majority of the Christian church worships on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. You have the Amish and the old Mennonites that don't have instruments or any kind of pictures in uh, their church at all. Certain Reformed churches believe that you should only sing psalms, songs that come from the psalms. Other churches only want hymns sung, and then there are others that will sing all the new fad songs, like Nick. Uh, no. <laughs> Worship styles. There's lots of reasons that, that churches divide. But the final category I want to describe is the one that's related to our text today. Not only this particular text, but really the three chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 of the book of Romans. The technical term for what I'm describing here is hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is simply a long way of saying, how do you interpret the Bible? The, the, the means by which you look at the scripture and you interpret the scripture. Different groups, even those that hold that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is all God's word, even within those circles, they have different ways of approaching how you interpret 
different passages within the Bible. Those differences are called presuppositions. Okay, another long word that simply means I suppose that this is true before I even get to the text. In other words, it's a belief that I have before I even pick up the, uh, the Bible to study a particular passage of Scripture. Now let me give you a, a simple way of looking at that. We talked about the liberal churches and we said that they do not believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. So when they come to the Bible and they read about a miracle that Jesus performed or that Jesus rose physically from the dead, they say, well, it really didn't happen. Not the way that it's described there. Oh, something happened, but people just misinterpreted it because they come with a belief that there is no supernatural activity of God in this world. All right? So that's a presupposition. It's a belief that you have ahead of time before you come to the passage of Scripture. And these three chapters that we're looking at, chapter 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, there are different hermeneutical approaches to these three chapters, different ways that people uh, look at, at them. So as we examine the passage today, I'm going to share with you how I interpret this, uh, the, the Bible as a whole, and particularly these chapters. And I'm going to do that by looking at our text today and hopefully discovering the theme of our text today, which is God's effective call has no barriers. God's effective call for salvation has no barriers. It's another way of saying that God's election is unconditional. It's not based upon anything that we can do or have done. So, as we look at this text, we're going to look at it and try to discover a hermeneutical approach. And for me, when I come to study the Bible, when I am looking at this Bible and trying to interpret it, I try to fall, follow what I call the Pauline interpretive principle. Okay? The, the Pauline interpretive principle. In other words, I studied how Paul interpreted the Old Testament and I have sought to take that same approach in approaching and studying all of Scripture. All right? How did Paul study his Scripture? His Scripture was the Old Testament, right? Paul didn't have a New Testament. So Paul looked at the Old Testament, and he studied the Old Testament, and then he taught that Old Testament to the church of his day. So... How did Paul interpret the scripture? And that's what we're going to look at, particularly looking at chapter 9 of Romans, which we've been studying for the past several weeks, where Paul takes a historical view. He, he looks at the historical events. He saw how those events worked out in a theological, doctrinal way. And then he took the Old Testament activities, and he moved them to the church of his day and said, this is how God wants us to live. Right? So it's fairly simple. How did God work back then? Now how does he want us to work? For instance, 
in our five verses that we're looking at, and I begin with verse 25, it starts with those words, as indeed he says in Hosea. So what's he doing? He's going back to the Old Testament, looking at the Old Testament. He has just taught the doctrine of divine election, starting at the beginning of chapter 9. He's teaching the doctrine of divine election, and he has worked down through, and last week we looked at how he used the potter. Okay, Remember making the, 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 the pots? How he used the potter to discover uh, God's divine election. And now he's going to back that up by going to the Old Testament and using Old Testament scripture passages to say, here is proof of what I've been teaching you throughout this chapter, chapter 9. So those Old Testament passages are going to back up his doctrinal teaching, and we're going to see that he's going to do that on three levels. Three levels. We're going to walk through those now. The first level of interpretation is the past. The past. Paul believed that the Old Testament taught accurately the history and was written grammatically the way God wanted it. Okay? So the historicity and the grammatical structures of the Old Testament, he took those and he said, these are literal. In other words, they happened. These were not make-believe events. It wasn't that, that you know, somebody misinterpreted what God was saying or whatever. These events actually happened. And that's why he could draw from those Old Testament events to back up what he's saying. He did it back in verses 4 and 5, for instance, of chapter 9. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. What has he done? He's, He's gone back to the 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 events of the Old Testament. He said, here, let me prove to you from these historical events that happened primarily during the Exodus, but also uh, the promises given earlier than that. So he's going back to the past, and he's saying, here's a foundation. This This is history, and this is grammatically the way that the Bible talks about it. You know, it's hard to teach the Bible if you don't believe that it's God's word. I mean, can you imagine the people who hold the evolutionary theory of uh, how humanity came to place? Well, what do they do when they are teaching the first several chapters of the book of Genesis? How do you approach it? You, you've got to say, well, it's an, it's an analogy or it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 you know, a, a myth of some kind that, that Moses picked up and, and, and wanted to teach us. But then when we get to the New Testament, how do you teach Romans 5 about Adam? Or how do you teach Revelation 22 about the new heavens and the new earth if the first heaven and the first earth weren't the way that we see it described in chapter 1 of Genesis? It's kind of hard to do that. I met with several pastors um, when I pastored down in Pennsylvania, and we met once a month for 
uh, about a year. And none of those other pastors, or all of the pastors from our local small town um, that I was, uh, that, where I pastored, and none of them believed that the Bible was God's word. Okay? So I was the only one who did. But you know these guys, they would come into our meetings and say, what are you guys preaching on? I've run out of things to preach on. Okay? Well, they didn't believe the Bible. They didn't believe things. So what were they going to preach? So they tended to move like every three or four or five years. They would move because they only had certain things that they would teach. They treated the Bible as if the Bible was a good citizenship book. How do, how do, you, how do you be a nice person? And that was their approach to the Bible. Well, how do you preach the truth of the scripture if you don't believe that what the Bible says is historical? If you don't believe that every word is God's word, that God gave it to us? Well, Paul could do that. Paul believed in the historical accuracy of the scriptures. He believed that the Bible was true, and therefore he could apply the events of the past to the present. And that's the second level of interpretation, the present. Paul realized that the records of the Old Testament were not just history and, and, and poetry. He believed that God interacted with human beings in history so that God could reveal his eternal purpose, his great power, and himself as we relate to him. By looking at how God interacted in the past, Paul was able to take... God's interaction back then and say, if he acted that way then, he's going to act the same way now. Remember what, what the scripture says, same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he acted that way in the past, he's going to act that way in the present, and he's going to act that way in the future. And so Paul applies it that way. Look at, for instance, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Now, Paul has been explaining in chapter 9 why only a few Jews have been saved. That's what this passage and the next two chapters are going to be all about. Why are there only a few Jews being saved when the Old Testament had been given to them along with all those promises and all the things that he talked about back in, in verses 4 and 5? Since they had all of that, why weren't more Jews becoming Christians, believing on Jesus? If they were God's elect people, why were only a few of them actually trusting in Christ. So Paul takes a look back at the Old Testament. He looks at what had happened in the Old Testament. He sees how God chose Abraham out of Ur, but didn't choose other people out of Ur. He chose Isaac, but he didn't choose Hagar's son, Ishmael, nor Abraham's second wife, Keturah's six sons. He only chose Isaac, out of those. He also chose Jacob, but didn't chose Esau, choose Esau. 
And then he goes and he, he, he looks at it in greater detail and he, he sees how God interacted with the exodus and, and Pharaoh and the issues in which Pharaoh's heart get hardened even though God is revealing himself to be the all-powerful God. So he looks at all of those things and then he looks at the, the, the prophets who talked about the potter and how the potter makes a, a, a pot but the clay is messed up and so he starts over and he remakes it into another thing. And he takes that information, which is what we've seen at the beginning of chapter 9, working down through till we get to the place where we are now. He's, he's taking all of that information and then he's realizing, well, God has always only had a remnant, a small portion of the people. And he sees that salvation is not dependent then upon how, who, uh, who a person is or what ethnicity they're born into, but it is God's unconditional sovereign choice. Salvation is not about who a person is, but about who God has chosen. And that's what he has done. He's looked at the past, and now he's applying it to the present. But even as he's applying it to the present, Paul isn't saying, so now we're the, we're the church and, and we're together and, and this is really good. But Paul wants us to look beyond now to the future. You see, Paul has a triple view triple-level view of God's eternal plan. What God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, but also, what is God's eternal promise? You see, the promise is the third level of interpretation. God's promise and what God means by that promise that moves from the past, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the present, the coming of Christ, and, and, and the planning of the church. But all of those are really pointing us forward to that ultimate promise in eternity. What God is going to do at the end of time. This isn't just the opinion of Paul, though. It's not just a, a Pauline hermeneutic that we're talking about here, for all of the writers of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament writers, all of them understood this truth, and that's why Paul can quote in this passage that we're looking at today, he can quote from Isaiah in verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Isaiah had been talking to the people of the northern kingdom, Israel. He was talking to them about the judgment that God was going to work on them at the hand of Assyria. But Paul, as he looks at what Isaiah is saying to the people of his day, Paul says, but wait a minute, that was only a partial fulfillment. God has that same way of acting today for the church now. So Paul knew that Isaiah's prophecy extended farther than just for the Jews in the nation of Israel 
to the Jews of Paul's day who were still rejecting the Messiah. They were still rejecting the truth about God. And that they were going to be judged just like the Jews, the nation of Israel in the past. So in Paul's present, he sees God is going to carry out his sentence on the earth now as well. But he knew that that was not going to be the end. That God's ultimate judgment was going to be on that last day when Christ comes back and all of the nations of the world will be judged. Three levels. The past and how God worked in the past, the present, how God is working now, and the promise of what God is going to do in the future. Now, let's take this study then to the next level, and let's examine the Pauline interpretation of prophecy. How did Paul see the prophetic work of God. And how did he do that in this three levels, past, present, and the promise eventually? Now, what I'm going to to say might be a little bit controversial um, because I'm going to interact with some big name preachers. who hold a little bit different view. You hear uh, a number of big name, and I'm talking about good, godly men that I admire, right, who will talk about the fact that we need to take the scriptures literally. Okay? Approach the scriptures literally. And by the literal interpretation of scripture, these individuals... I'll even name a few of them. Uh, And again, men I admire highly. John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, and others. They will use that terminology. When we look at the scriptures, particularly prophecy, we need to look at it literally. And what they mean by that is the person interpreting the scripture, looking at a passage have to take it as literal as you possibly can when you come to those passages. But is that the approach that the New Testament took to the scriptures? Paul didn't. The writers of the Gospels didn't. Certainly, John and Revelation didn't see it that way. You see, Paul begins this discussion about election in chapter 9. He begins back in verse 6 with a statement. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, why does he have to say that? Why would he even have to ask that question or make that statement? It is because if you take the Old Testament literally, God's word has failed. You see, God made promises that weren't fulfilled to literal Israel. So Paul is talking about all the blessings and all the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel that were only partially fulfilled in the past. And he wanted the church in Rome to know that God had one plan from the beginning, not 
two plans or three plans, but one plan from the beginning that is this three-level tier work of salvation. How God worked in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, how that continued on into the New Testament and expanded, but still only partially fulfilled, and then on into his eternal purpose and plan. And so under the Old Covenant, God primarily was speaking to the nation of Israel. Under the New Covenant, God expanded that through the coming of Jesus Christ. So you had partial fulfillment in the Old Testament. You had a greater fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ and the expansion of the church. But even that is not the full fulfillment. The full fulfillment does not occur until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul shares that truth with the church at Rome, he wants them to see that God is working out his eternal plan, not just his partial plan. And so what did he get? He got his proof, the proof that comes from the Old Testament. That's where he, he backed up what he was saying. God, he says, has not failed in carrying out his eternal purpose. For God had indicated throughout the scriptures that his promises and his plans went far beyond the physical seed of Abraham. Instead, God's intent has always been to reach the whole world. And to prove his point, he then, in our chapter, in our verses, our text today, he goes back to the Old Testament in three locations. We have verse 25, verse 27, verse 29. He says in verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea. So he's going to back up what he says from what Hosea has said. And then verse 27, and Isaiah cries out. And then in verse 29, as Isaiah predicted. Right? So he's going to take the Old Testament, and that's going to be his proof of what he is telling the church of his day. The New Testament writers, as we said, did not have a New Testament to preach from. They had to preach from the Old Testament. All of their teaching was from the Old Testament. Whether it was Mark or Luke, Peter or Jude, they all quoted and they all referenced the passages that came from the Old Testament when they were speaking about what God was doing in the church of their day. The church that was both Jew and Gentile. They did not only use what are often called the Messianic passages in order to do that. They used the whole of the Old Testament. They used historical stories like Abraham's dalliance with Hagar in the book of Galatians to prove it. Or how about the flood of Noah that Peter talks about? And then we have the, the use of the chronologies of the Old Testament from the book of Chronicles that Luke uses. We have the prophecies about Isaiah's son, Maher Halashashbaz. Okay, everybody want to say that together? <laughs> right? Maher Halashashbaz. It's, it's the longest word in the English Bible. All right? That's Isaiah's son. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. 
says what was said about Isaiah's son is true of Jesus Christ. You have the muzzling of an ox taken out of the law to speak to the New Testament, paying a pastor's salary. It's not just the New Testament, it's present day too. Thank you. Appreciate that. You see, they looked at the scriptures and, and, and they understood those scriptures on a deeper level. The past, the literal of the past, applied to the present, but was a promise looking forward to the future. And so they could take any place from the Old Testament and they could teach Christ and they could teach God's future promises. It didn't matter what the Old Testament was about. It was, how did it teach Christ? They even took passages out of context, at least the way that we would talk about using a passage of Scripture, when they saw a greater biblical context intended by God in what was said. So, they look at Joseph, Samuel, Isaac, and David, and they see in them types of who Christ is going to be that there is going to be a greater leader than, uh, than Joseph, a greater judge than Samuel, a greater son than Isaac, and a greater king than David. And then they take a, an unknown priest-king from the city of Salem named Melchizedek, one little passage of Scripture, and they teach from that little bit of scripture, the glory of the true priest king, Jesus Christ, in the book of Hebrews. And then in our passage, we have the prophet Hosea, whose marriage to the prostitute, Gomer, along with their children, the story of the Old Testament type of Israel's unfaithfulness with God, and it becomes, in our text, the inclusion of the Gentiles and their unfaithfulness to their creator being included into the family of God. And he uses that to answer the question, who are the elect? Let's see how Paul describes those people. Who are the people in Hosea and Israel. You see, the Old Testament, the verses that Paul quotes in our verses 25 and 26 of our text, it refers to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the north and the east. And so he says in verse 25 and 26, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, that passage actually comes from two places in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. That's where the first sentence comes from. And then the second half of chapter 1, verse 10 of Hosea that's where the second 
line in those verses comes from. Hosea, in his book, is addressing the northern kingdom. He is talking to Israel. And he is saying to Israel, God is going to destroy you. And he's going to scatter your people all over the place. And it's going to look like God has given you up and you're no longer his people. But God's going to bring you back. And those that, that seemed that were not my people, God is now going to call my people. And those that seem not to be beloved because God cast them off, they are going to be beloved as he brings them back. And that was, in, in terms of the fulfillment, that happened at the end of the exile when the people were able to come back to the land. But it was only a partial fulfillment. It was only a small remnant that came back to the land. So Paul looks at that, and Paul recognizes that Hosea is speaking prophetically, not just about the people of Israel, but about the larger people of God. He's going beyond that historical moment. And he is speaking to the future inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. But Hosea himself gives us a hint of that. You see, in the very last verse of the last chapter of Hosea, Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, listen to what Hosea says. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Paul is saying, if we really have wisdom, we're going to see that the fulfillment of this is not the return after the exile, where only a few people came back. But actually, it was God's reaching out to the Gentiles to include the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. So Paul recognizes the mystery of the gospel that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that God's mystery was that the Gentiles would be included was coming right out of the book of Hosea. The Gentiles are the ones that Hosea is saying were not my people who become sons of the living God. And so if we're going to understand that, we need to see how Paul expands that with the priority of Isaiah and Israel. You see, Israel thought that they had this special place in God's plan, that they were God's priority for salvation. They took the promise of Abraham and his descendants that they would be as the sand of the sea, and they believed that that promise meant that as Jews, they would automatically be saved. Isaiah shows how the physical promise can come true, that Abraham's seed can be like the sand of the sea without the spiritual promise being fulfilled until the Gentiles were included. So Paul quotes Isaiah's balanced approach to this, the past and the present, in verses 27 and 28. And there he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
God's promise to Abraham. Right? Your seed is going to be like the sand of the sea. Right? So we're looking at the physical thing. Isaiah says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a literal interpretation, right? He goes on, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Isaiah is pointing out how God could literally fulfill having many, many Jews born, and yet there will only be a remnant that are actually eternally saved or elect. Consider how nearly three million Jews left Egypt during the Exodus, if you count the 600 men between the ages of 20 and 60, and their children, and their wives, and their daughters, okay, all of that. You're probably talking close to three million individuals that left Egypt in the Exodus, but only a handful believed and were saved. The rest, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Around the time of Jonah, the prophet Elijah prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. And God says to Elijah, I have saved, secured for myself, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's a tiny amount, guys. There were probably close to 7 to 10 million people in Israel, that northern kingdom at that time. Only 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. But at approximately that same amount of time, there was a prophet named Jonah. And Jonah goes off to preach to a Gentile enemy of the people of Israel, Assyria, and their capital city, Nineveh. And here's what God has to say to Jonah. That, they, that Nineveh had 120,000 individuals that needed to be saved. Wait a minute, 7,000 in Israel, the northern kingdom, 120,000 in that heathen place called Assyria that God spared their lives and through the preaching of Jonah caused them to call out to the one true God. No wonder the Apostle Paul ends verse 28 with those words, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Jonah didn't believe that the Assyrians belonged to the kingdom of God. God had other plans. Well, let's move this dialogue into the 21st century. Let's bring it up to date as we consider the Pauline implications in practice. As I said, what I had to say may be a bit controversial because it does go against a major teaching in the evangelical church today. 
pastors who believe that Israel holds a special place in God's heart. Well, the fact is, it's true. Israel does hold a special place in God's heart. But it's Israel and not the Jews who hold that special place. What do I mean by that? Well, Israel, Paul points out in the opening verses, is not the nation of Israel. It is the people of promise. It is the people of promise that are Jews and Gentiles alike. And that's what he is stressing through these three chapters. You see, for God, there is no preference except God and God alone. You see, God determines who is elect. And God determines who will be saved. He does not do it based on ethnicity. Do you know not one person has ever been saved because of their ethnicity? Not one Jew has been saved because they were a Jew. And not one Gentile because they were a Gentile. Those that God saved, he saved out of his own unconditional election. Verse 25 shows us that God is not obligated by anything external. Those who were not my people, I'm going to call my people. And those, and her who was, who was not beloved, I'm going to call beloved. You see, all of humanity fits into that first category, doesn't it? Every Jew fits that category, and every Gentile fits that category. We're all not my people. I, I, I heard... In the music today, I heard in the, the prayer that was offered that our salvation does not come because of anything that we've done. It comes only because God, out of his grace, has acted. We're all not my people. Romans 1 through Romans 3 made that very clear that all have sinned and all were condemned alike, Jew and Gentile. But we also see from the Old Testament that God has always saved Gentiles, even under the Old Covenant. Was Adam a Jew? No. How about Seth? How about Enoch, who walked with God and was not? He wasn't a Jew. Noah wasn't a Jew. And do you know what? Abraham wasn't a Jew. No, Abraham was an Amorite, at least according to Ezekiel 16, verse 3, where it says, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father, talking about Abraham, was an Amorite. Your mother, talking about Sarah, was a Hittite. And then you have Judah. Judah, Judah is one of the 12 sons of, of uh, Jacob, right, that become the nation of Israel. And Judah is the one who receives the birthright. And through him comes Jesus. Well, you know, all of Judah's descendants, all of them came from a Canaanite woman named Tamar. She's included in Jesus' genealogy, along with Rahab, who was a Jebusite from Canaan, the city of, of Jericho. 
Ruth, who was a Moabitess, right? And then Uriah the Hittite's wife. And they're all included in Jesus' genealogy. Gentiles. And we see a number of others throughout the Old Testament. And of course, the Lord continued to save some Jews as well. Verse 29 reminds us, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, in other words, God did save some Jews, there were always a remnant of the Jews saved. And yet for the Jews, it's always been a remnant, but it's always been a remnant of every people, nation, and tongue. It's God, and God alone, who determines unconditionally who is elect, who will be saved, and who will remain in their rebellion. Well, let's kind of wind this up. Because of that truth, there is no partition. It's the church and the church alone. God has never had more than one people of God. Ruth was a Moabitess. But when she became a believer, she was not put as a second-class citizen in the kingdom. Listen to what the scripture says. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Rahab was not a second-class citizen when she became part of the, the Jewish nation. And that's true of all of the Old Testament people. And when Jonah tried to make the Assyrians out to be a separate people, God says, no. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from the left? Yes, I'm going to include them in my kingdom. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, that unity took on even greater clarity. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There are no two kingdoms. There is one kingdom. One covenant, one kingdom, one salvation. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There are not two So it speaks to the issues that divide us and our ethnics issues today. There's not a black church and a white church. There's not a Hispanic church. There's one church. Some people might prefer certain worship styles or whatever. But when it comes to the people of God, there is no separation. There is no division. There is not messianic Jewish congregation and some other group. One people of God. Now and in eternity. When you and I get to heaven, there is not going to be an African-American 
church over here and some Caucasian church over there and a Hispanic congregation here and somebody from, from Nairobi and, and you know, Kenya and, and you know, Nigeria over here and somebody else over there and the, the Jews having their own location. When we get into heaven, there's going to be one people of God and that's the way it's supposed to be now. So Paul puts it that way in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The past Old Testament, Old Covenant pointed to a future greater reality, partial fulfillment. Christ comes, we have a greater fulfillment, but there is a second coming. And that'll be the greatest fulfillment, the final fulfillment. And God's elect will be in his presence for all of eternity. And so let me conclude with just a couple thoughts. If you have any sense that you deserve to be saved, you're going to hell. Seriously. If you think it's based on ethnicity, if you think it's based upon your being born into a Christian family, you see from the Old Testament, not one Jew was saved because they were a Jew. And not one Christian is saved because you were born into a Christian family. The relationship with Christ. And that's all. It has been from the Old Testament is now and will be for all of eternity. And if you believe that anyone else deserved to be saved because of something about themselves, then you'd better reconsider because the scripture does not teach that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look at this passage. There's some exciting things here. Wonderful great truths. You have one people. And you've always had one people. One great people of God. Some of them were found in the nation of Judah in the Old Covenant. and Some of them were found in the nation of Israel. And some of them were found in the nation of Assyria. And some of them in the country of Syria. And there were Hittites and they were Moabites, and they were Canaanites. And then in the New Testament, there, there were people from what's today Turkey, and Greece, and Rome, and Egypt, and Ethiopia, and on goes the list. The people of God, elect from every nation. And we just praise you. And we come to you knowing that one day we will rise into the presence of God. And your name will be lifted up and exalted by people from every nation, every tongue, every ethnicity. For your glory, to show that you are God and God alone. Amen.